Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s, finding out what happened to her or your in the game, sister. With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. Search for hidden objects from the parlours of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. Each chapter uncovers a collection of dazzling hidden object spectacles for you to solve, and I've had a lot of fun. Currently on chapter 7, making progress little by little, tapping away on my phone to get all the puzzle pieces in place. While searching for the murderer, or whatever happened to your sister, you get to decorate your own island with gardens and buildings and chat and play with other Others by joining a detective club. It's a lot of fun and very social. I play while I'm on the train. It keeps me active between my journeys to London and I love the time limits that are pushing me to find those clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The process to get here is awful. The journey out is horrific. Most people don't have the stamina to do this. I don't want people to go through this pain. I wish I could help people not be born into that in the first place so that they don't have to leave. Hello, I've got a special episode today. I know I say stuff like that and it can sound um, a little insincere, I suppose, but that's because every episode is special. But this one in particular, it's Javi Weisberger, who is just what a story she has what an amazing person i'm a huge fan and i've wanted to get her on the podcast for quite some time and javi grew up in the a i should say a hasidic jewish community uh she rightly corrects me i suppose in a sense well you're gonna hear and i think this is something i always struggle with with uh not so much cults, but religions and the extreme ends of religions. Um, and I remember when I had Yasmin Mohammed, the ex-Muslim, on the podcast, she uh, berated me for for because I because I kept saying, "Oh, remember everyone, it's it's not just Islam. There is plenty of extremism in other religions." And she was like, "Why do you keep? Because she's Canadian. Why do you keep saying that? You know, it's not." you wouldn't say that for another religion you know and basically she was annoyed because she's like you should be able to criticize islam um and and a, and a similar thing happens today javi's very polite and nice but uh it's a difficult one because i've done bits about hasidic judaism before and some people from milder parts or, or happier parts of the of the community have been upset with me for, for sort of putting them all under one umbrella. And as Javi explains at the very beginning, uh, there are so many different groups uh, within the community. So to speak of the community doesn't even make much sense. Her particular one, as she'll explain, was founded by her own grandfather. Um, and it's just the most extraordinary thing. I sort of wish I had more time, really. And if I were in uh, New York with her, then um, I, I would have maybe tried to do a two or three hour one. Uh, as it is, we had one hour. Maybe I can try and get her back on uh, in a year or something and hear more of her story because there's just so much to it. But Javi identifies as a queer person um, and she'll explain exactly what, what she means by that. And obviously, you know, growing up in an oppressive society as a queer person is just so difficult and so I, I admire and respect her uh, a lot uh, and that's why I wanted to have her on and to get to speak to her and meet her and we even got her into a studio in New York 
I'll stop doing that. That's annoying saying New York like that. That's not even a good accent. But uh, even got her into the studio because I wanted this to be good and it, and it is it really really is what a wonderful speaker she is what a lovely person i can tell you on and off air you know off the recording oh what a lovely person to, she has an aura about her i'm just i'm just you know I'm, I'm being sycophantic here but i'm a huge fan um i hope you guys are too um and also do remember go check out footsteps it's the organization that helps a lot of uh, uh, Hasidic Jew- Jewish people to, to leave the community and transition into an outside life. Uh, there's, a, there's a similar one in the UK called, I think, Gesher EU, which I spoke to Emily Green about some time ago, um, another Hasidic Jewish woman in, in London. Um, but Footsteps is this huge one in America, and they do a lot of fantastic work. So if you're feeling just intrigued, go check out the website. And if you're feeling charitable, obviously you follow this podcast, you're interested in cults and religions and extreme communities. Uh, it might be one that you want to subscribe to. So check out Footsteps. Just Google that America, you know, in America, uh, Footsteps. Coming up on the podcast, there are some big episodes. I'm just pulling up my list here so I can uh, let you know. I'm actually going into a studio to do a few episodes that I'm filming. I can't reveal all of them, but what I can say is I'm having an ex-Jehovah's Witness on called Harrison Cotier, who's just a fascinating, very handsome man um so he's great um there's another one with hg tudor the narcissist coming up uh and an ex-scientologist alexander barnes ross also in the studio so it's all kicking off the podcast is progressing it's moving on up it's all happening so i hope you guys stick with it but now you're on the edge of hasidic judaism and being queer therein with javi weisberg What sort of Hasidic community did you grow up in? Would you be able to explain it to me? Yes. Um, So this is the stuff that people uh, don't know a lot about, but Judaism is divided in a lot of different denominations. And then there's, you know, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox. And then within Orthodoxy, there's Ultra-Orthodox and Modern Orthodox. I was raised in an Ultra-Orthodox community, which is also divided between like Yeshivish and Hasidic communities. People don't know a lot about that. But then the Hasidic community is divided in like all these different sects. I was raised in a very obscure little sect called Emunas Yisrael, um, which literally translates to faith in Israel, the faith of Israel maybe. Um, and it's a small sect that does not originate in Eastern Europe the way like a lot of the other Hasidic sects do. It's actually founded by my grandfather, my mother's father is, he came, you know, he was living in America. He was a, a teacher, like a, what they call a mashkiach, like a supervisor of a group of yeshiva students who were not Hasidic. Um, but he had kind of like a Hasidic flavor in his teachings and his students or followers like liked that and kind of started to worship him. And I don't know if that's the best word, but, you know, follow his leadership and learn with him and from him. And they kind of developed their own little sect. And um, yeah, so that's the sect I was raised in. Although like my father's family was from a different sect called Klosenberg or Zanz Klosenberg, um, which is a more, a larger, more well-known sect. Um, But when he married my mother, our family was kind of both. Klosenberg and Amunas Yisrael. So 
come from very um, uh, renowned lineage and important peoples. Yeah, it seems so. I, uh, one of the mistakes I think I've made in, in talking about Hasidic Judaism or ultra-Orthodox Judaism uh, is, is I've suggested it it, that it might be a cult and I now realize that even just saying it might be doesn't really make sense because there's so many different uh, sects and different parts as you say I mean where do you where would you stand on it do, do, do any parts of it get cultish I, I love this question I just uh, actually I'm coming here directly from my therapy session where I spent a lot of time talking about this so I'm well prepared oh, for great. this um, I refer to my experience growing up as a cultish experience I feel like leaving it was akin to what one might experience in leaving a cult and trying to transition my children out of it was kind of that like deprogramming that you might need to do for people in cults. So I'm not an expert by any means on this, but I do feel like it was a cult experience. And um, there are you know people who study this and who have a lot of bigger and better thoughts about this than I do, who do say that there are maybe many different subcults within Hasidism. So maybe there's not one leader that's like running the cult, but there are many different little cults and some Hasidic sects are more culty than others. Um, I will say people, there's a running joke in the Hasidic community that I was raised in. Again, it's called Emunas Yisrael and people of the community who are not of that sect refer to them as the Munis, um, which is a cult. Um, and because there was like kind of a cultish following for people who were into this Hasidic sect, um, my grandfather has this kind of cult-like community. People really worship him and want to do everything he tells them to. And there's kind of a different, unique approach to Judaism and prayer that he teaches. And so maybe that's one of the examples of a specific sect that's more culty than some of the others. Many are not culty, as I, because I, I've been in trouble for this, and I should say many are, are not. I mean, look, I'm Jewish and you're Jewish. Um, the, the some, I mean, what does Hasidic actually mean? Ah, uh, ooh, this is a test. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since I thought about this, but I think it, well, I don't know the literal translation of Hasidic. I do know that its origins are based on um, worship through song and love and prayer rather than text study. Um, I think that that's kind of where the Baal Shem Tov, who is the originator of Hasid Hasidism, um, that was the, the point of it. Um, and for in many Hasidic communities, that, that's still a big focal point. Um, it's this focus on joy and prayer and song and beautifying religion and not just focusing on seriousness and ascetism. Is that a word? As, as, an ascetic I, lifestyle? I don't know. Uh, A-S-C-E-T-I-C. Yeah, -E yeah, that word. Um, and I think that's, yeah. you know, within the yeshivish community, definitely a focus, like focusing on minimalism and a simple lifestyle and Torah study. And then Hasidic folks are, you know, might be focused on like songs and prayer and, you know, that kind of more of a joyous, um, rich, uh, maybe that was a poor choice of words, but yeah, like it's a, just a different approach. Practically speaking in modern day life, Hasidism is, has also taken on this other dimension, which is um, more 
of a sheltered existence, separate from the world, speaking a language that's different than the folks around you and kind of dressing in more modest ways and, um, you know, separating yourself from the world in this very extreme way. Um, and, and to me, like, that's a big piece of what it is to be Hasidic today. And, and that has a bigger impact on the individuals in it than like, oh, what the idea behind it is, you know, when you're in it every day, it's less about, oh, how long are we praying for? And more about what's my day-to-day -day looking like? And it's a very um, isolated, insulated experience um, for people in it. What was it like? Can, how how best can you explain it to those of us who have not grown up in anything like that? What was it like for you as a, as a child growing up in a Hasidic Jewish, in your particular Hasidic Jewish community? So growing up, it was happy. It, I, it was a very full, joyful childhood, I would say, for me. And obviously my experience is not everybody's experience. Um, I'm the fifth of 10 children. So it's a big family. And there was a lot of a lot of joy and warmth in my childhood, you know, like um, the Hanukkah candles and, you know, one sibling was playing the keyboard and everybody else was singing and my mother was cooking delicious food. And um, I have a lot of very happy, warm childhood memories. Um, I think at the same time, you know, when, when that's all you know, it's, it's wonderful in some ways. Um, I was a very curious kid, so I was always like, what's right around the corner? Who are these people? Why are they different from us? Um, you know, what, at the dentist office, I'd be like, oh, Cinderella, I want to watch this movie that they're showing, and I'm curious about what is this love they speak of? You know, what is what are these experiences, like these emotional experiences that I don't really witness in, in my day-to-day -day life um, because there's such a disconnect from the larger world and from some of the concepts that seem so normal now to to me as like, oh, this is what it is to be human, um, weren't really present in my life. You know, my parents didn't show physical affection um, in front of us um, and, and things like that. So I did, there was like a lot of disconnect from the larger world that I was just so hungry for and curious about. Um, and so that impacted me a lot growing up. Did you get hugs from your parents? Did they say, I love you? So and again this is a personal piece i didn't um my my mother was just not a very affectionate person i think she was just dealing with a lot of her own childhood trauma and stuff and my father was had a lot of hang-ups around um modesty and what's appropriate and so he wouldn't really show any affection at all but i do think that now looking back at it with like, you know, with the benefit of hindsight that there was a lot of love in my childhood. It just wasn't maybe expressed in the same ways as other people express it. It sounds like maybe it's a little bit maybe repressed by some of the culture. Yeah, exactly. And um, there were 10 of us also. So a lot of just my childhood was just about like getting through the day, surviving the chaos, um, you know, getting clothes on our on our bodies and food in our bellies and getting through to the next thing. Um, life was just kind of intense and, um, you know, there was just a lot of chaos. So th there was less focus on like, oh, how much do you love me? And more, you know, do I have clothes to wear tomorrow? Uh, another thing that's come up like time and time again when dis when I've been discussing different religions and communities and sometimes cults and things uh, is is marriage. It seems to be this 
like time and time again, uh, children are sort of raised and it's like, who can we set them up with? Was that a big part of your childhood as well? Absolutely. Um, it's such a focus in the Hasidic community. Um, from my earliest memories, I just know that this was like a, a piece of like, it matters so much about how I do in school and who my friends are and how I dress and how I behave so that I can find a good husband. Um, and I've talked about this in other places, but like when I was 12, my father called me into a room and said, here's a little prayer for you to recite so that you can find a good husband. And you should say this prayer every day. Um, so it was very part of my just entire thought process was making sure that when I'm of age, which is 18 and up, um, that a good boy snatches me up and that I'm not one of those sad, sad, you know, girls that are the last one in their class to get married because nobody wants them. Did you feel that pressure? Obviously now you are gay. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I phrased that wrong, God. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> you, you now know that you are gay. Um, did you also still want what was sort of uh, expected of you at that stage? Did you want to find a, a, a man at that stage? So first of all, I want to clarify that I'm, I identify as queer slash bisexual. So I'm attracted to people of all genders to set the record straight because I've gotten a lot of weird feedback when people hear about my experience and they're like, wait, but didn't you date this guy? And aren't you, I'm currently engaged to be married to a man. So I want to set that record straight. Oh, um, oh yes. well, congratulations on the engagement. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but I will say that my early experiences, I was only attracted to girls slash women growing up. Um, and it's one of those things that I remember, like my classmates would be, you know, talking about the Miami boys choir. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're a, a, a Hasidic boys choir um, that just had recently had a big moment on TikTok, which is, I think your audience might be familiar with them because they got very popular on TikTok, uh, even amongst non-Hasidic people. Um, so these Miami boys choir little boys, you know, whatever, they were my age, I suppose. Um, my classmates would talk about, you know, which one's cute and who do they have a crush on? And I just remember being like, I, while they're crushing on these boys, I was crushing on them, on my classmates who were all girls. Um, so I think that, you know, growing up, I didn't really have um, attraction to boys or people who were not girls. Um, and that was most of my young adulthood slash early adulthood. Um, it was only like in the past 10 years or so that I realized that my ideas around gender were so flawed and I had such weird boundaries around it because I was raised in such a strict gendered environment that I saw such clear distinctions between like boys and girls rather than people with their varied ways of being. And I, I cared less about their anatomies and how they were raised and more about the human in front of me. But that took time and kind of a lot of healing from that very um, binary childhood that I had. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Must have been a very confusing time. 
Uh, which time specifically? With these very old, maybe old-fashioned or, or uh, orthodox or conservative uh, things, and you, ha you know, everything was about the, the praying and everything to get a husband, and this was not something at the time that you felt like you wanted at all? You know, I don't think I realized it then. I don't think I connected these ideas around crushes or like my hormonal reactions or to the responsibility that I have to marry a man. Um, I didn't see marriage to a man as something that, you know, is about my pleasure or joy or interest. It was about the right thing to do to build a Jewish home and make a family. Um, even when I, you know, to fast forward when I was 18 and told by my father that he wants me to marry this boy slash man that I was going to marry. Um, you know, I, at the time, you know, I was at, away at summer camp, an all-girls summer camp, having all kinds of encounters and affairs with different girls in the camp. And it didn't seem weird to me that I went home, met a boy, and then got engaged to him and went back to summer camp, being like, this is the boy I'm going to marry. Um, they were very separate pieces to me. Um, only later, once I was married to him and understood, oh, wow, this is what I'm expected to do in marriage. This is kind of what it's like to have, you know, be in an intimate relationship with someone you don't want, feel intimate feelings towards. Um, that's when kind of it got confusing for me and I had to parse out all these pieces. Did, did he seem at first like a, like a nice man? You're asking the same question my father asked me when I said, I don't like him. And he said, well, does he seem nice? Do you respect him? And I said, he seems nice and I respect him. He was a, a Torah scholar and you know what I thought was a good person. Um, I just wasn't attracted to him. Mm. And I, I remember, you know, when I when I interviewed, I interviewed a woman called Emily Green, uh, who's a wonderful woman who uh, broke away from the, the Hasidic um, community in, in London. And she said that the night of her wedding was was the most horrific night, you know, one of the most horrific nights of her life. And she considers it, you know, forced or coercive sex that you're supposed to have. Was 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 it like that for you? So Emily and I are good friends. Oh. Um, and my yeah. I, I adore Emily. I haven't seen or talked to her in a long time, but I have such incredible respect for her. She's such a cool person. I went to her house. Oh my gosh. I'm jealous. I've never been. Oh, um, she's, great. she's been to mine though, I think. Oh yeah. She's awesome. Wow. And you, I interrupted your thought. No, no. It was just that I, 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 I was just saying, um, was it as it was for Emily, you know, a horrific night. What what was the wedding itself like and uh, and afterwards? Yeah, so I have a very shared, similar experience with Emily around that. Um, I had an awful experience of the wedding night. Um, here I was, you know, on my wedding day, surrounded by everyone who loves me, on the women's side with all my girlfriends and, you know, female cousins and people who love me. And um, that kind of intense transition, like knowing I have to go home at the end of this night with a man who's a stranger to me and do something that feels so completely unnatural and uncomfortable to me, something that I really don't know much about, hadn't really thought much about. Um, and suddenly, you know, and then, then actually practically going home with this person um, and having this incredibly invasive experience, um, which I consider a rape. I do. I do feel like on that night I was raped. And I talk about this that, you know, I don't think he, my ex-husband, raped me. I just feel my body experienced it like a, like a rape. Um, there was just no consent at all. 
I didn't really understand what was happening to me and it was um, intrusive and painful and maybe the biggest trauma I've ever experienced in my life. Did you feel there was there was any way you could could say no? I mean, it's just must be so much pressure. I didn't feel like I could say no. Um, later, you know, I, I, over the years, I've stayed married to my ex-husband for like seven years or so. And, and, you know, as time passed, I realized like, I can't do this. And I did start saying no. And that's when it got a little more complicated, you know, because his rabbis were telling him to keep having sex with me. And he felt obligated, kind of like a responsibility, like a mitzvah to keep having uh, relations with me. And so it became more and more clear that this is, um, you know, on, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like there was no um, consent and it was more blatant. Whereas on the wedding night, I just think we both thought we just need to do this. And it was a lot more gray in that time. To, like, it didn't feel like we had permission to not go forward with it. Do you think this might be a common feeling uh, in some Hasidic communities for uh, women in particular? I think so. I will say that like early on, you know, after my wedding, I had a lot of friends who had also gotten married around that same time because most of my classmates were getting married in quick succession around 18, 19 years old. Um, and I had some close friends who were, you know, real with me, who would share with me what their experiences were like. And this was across the board, the experience of everyone in my inner circle, um, that there was no desire to have intercourse and it felt painful and not pleasant, not good for, for any of my friends. The difference for, between me and some of my friends is that as time passed, they got comfortable with it and they got, um, they, you know, found more intimacy and ways to make this feel okay for them. And that never happened for me. It just makes you wonder, like, who is this all for? Because it feels like the women don't want it. And from your description of your husband, it didn't seem like he really wanted it. Uh, and it's just like, who's this all for? God. Yeah. Is he watching? I think, I think that. I think that that's what the belief is. I think that there's this idea of procreation um, for the sake of a holy duty. And it's not about um, desire and romance. That's not to say that nobody ever experiences that in the community, because I know some people who do. Um, but I don't think that's kind of sold as the purpose of it, or that's why it's happening. And I will say in my, my experience is different than others, because my ex-husband also didn't want to be there. And I, it's hard for me to speak on his behalf. He's not here to defend his own experience. So I'm not going to, um, I just will say like, that was unique to our dynamic. I think that it can look different for different men and women. I think often, as is often the case, men might have a little more exposure, a little more awareness around what sex is and um, a little more raw desire. And they're also sold this idea that they have the power in the relationship. They have the right to have access to this woman who's now their wife. And so that might look different for different couples. And, and was uh, you mentioned procreation. So was that sort of the object? Was that the, the was it unsaid or was it something even said during um, copulation? Um, it was definitely said. There was actually a prayer that we used to recite before um, relations that was about, you know, God should grant us children, um, specifically boy children. Um, oh. You know, I forget the exact language of it, but that was a prayer that we recited before having relations. This is 
a society that I suppose many of us would would consider to to be sexist, right? Yes. It's it's yeah. It's it just. I don't know. I'm tripping over my words sometimes because I've been shouted at for, for you know, and people are saying you're Jewish and you need to, you know, stop. What you're saying is going to spread more hatred, and that's the last thing that I want. Uh, but there's such a huge difference between Jewish people who are ethnically or lineage is you know is Jewish and and people who follow the most extreme branches of of a belief system, right? I think fundamentalism is fundamentalism is fundamentalism and take any religion out of it. It's not about whether you're Jewish or Christian or Islam or Muslim. It's about how you practice. And um, I think that when you take any extreme sect of any religion, you um, start seeing those themes of sexism, misogyny, racism, um, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia. Um, I think those things are across all fundamentalists spaces and i'm i'm with you i don't want to speak in a way that says you know jews are this because i don't believe that's the case um i think you know the problem lies within i think it starts with men in power uh, abusing that power and controlling people to do and think in ways that harm the most vulnerable harm women harm children. I think that that's also a theme in fundamentalist spaces that children are kind of seen as just the property of the community. And there's this kind of structured way to raise children to just continue to bear, to bring forth the teachings and the beliefs of this system of belief. And, and then of course, the most vulnerable trans people, queer people, um, people of color. Um, there's a lot of similarities in all fundamentalist spaces around these ideas. And so if people really care about protecting, you know, Jews from anti-Semitism, they might want to get to the root of these toxic issues rather than saying, stop speaking ill about Jewish people. I think that we can focus on start protecting the most vulnerable. And um, the, that's the conversation we should be having rather than, you know, sh shutting people up from speaking out against atrocities that happened to them, myself included, and that are still happening to everybody who's still trapped in there. I have nine siblings and nieces and nephews who are just continuing to be, you know, living in this experience, deprived of education, of any knowledge of what's happening in the larger world, and then primed for forced marriage and forced uh, childbirth. And then the cycle just continues. So it's important that we speak out and protect those who are vulnerable. Do we have an idea of how far-reaching this level of extreme is in, in the world and also in the Jewish community or in the religious Jewish community? I wish I would have prepped for this better. I, I know that there are, like, there's research on this. Oh. Um, and, you know, I work for a nonprofit called Footsteps, and Footsteps has shared out a survey, and there's a lot of information available. People can look it up online. But I it, it's far-reaching, especially in... New York and um, in, in England, there's, you know, Golders Green and um, Stamford Hill, I believe. There's neighborhoods where there's big populations of extreme fundamentalism. Yeah. I've just looked it up and it says that there are about, uh, let's see, 130,000 Hasidic households worldwide, about 5% of the global Jewish population. So, so relatively small, but it's still we're still talking about tens of thousands of people. But again, I have to be careful. I, I imagine not all Hasidic Judaism is, is to that kind of level. 
not all ascetic Judaism is to that kind of level. I think I wish people would stop policing you and your language and focus on the heart of this issue and actually prioritize the vulnerable people who are in it. I think this is the piece that's coming up for me as your. I, I understand you have an audience and you and people hold you to um, a level of accountability and you should be careful with your language. Um, but I think that your focus should be less on protecting those privileged Hasidic people who maybe are not as marginalized and oppressed, right? Like there might be exceptions. There might be Hasidic people that um, whose women aren't being forced to marry and might have a little more choice around it and who maybe get to have a little more power over the clothes they wear on their body. Not much, but a little bit more. Um, and still, and if they feel protective over, you know, why are you lumping me in with this problematic group? I wish they would focus that energy on thinking, wow, there are people who are more marginalized than me. How can I protect and support them? I wish the conversation would focus more on protecting people who are being harmed and not on protecting the image of those who have more privilege and power yeah. in this situation. Well, I suppose we can do, we can, I could try and do both to an extent and say, look, it's not those, those people, they don't mean any harm. I don't want to group them in, but also, you know, let's expose the wrongdoings uh, of the extreme ends. You, you went to a Hasidic therapist. Um, so tell me about that. What was the point when you, you went there? I just thought therapy wouldn't be part of Hasidism. Yeah, it's kind of a newer phenomenon, I believe. And there's still a lot of um, shame and discomfort around that. People don't, in the Hasidic community, don't comfortably speak about mental health and things like that. And so while there is has been a lot of movement in the direction of more conversation around mental health needs, and there are therapists in the Hasidic community, both folks who were raised in the Hasidic community who did manage to go to school and get an um degrees and licenses to practice um, counseling and also folks who are not who are outside of the Hasidic community who come into the community specifically for this need like with other medical professionals um, so I uh, was sent to many therapists while I was still in the community um, from very early on in the marriage when I spoke out and said I'm unhappy my family sent me to all kinds of professionals to see how they could fix me and make me conform better um, some of it was kind of like reparative therapy-esque um, and some of it was actually you know, helpful to me to have a space to really parse out what's going on for me and might be the reason why I'm doing as well as I am doing today. Shout out to the good therapists uh, if they're listening to this episode. Uh, there were some good ones. And, and um, you know, I, I don't know what specifically you were asking me about. Actually, like, do you want to clarify like, what, what it is you wanted to hear about? So what was it? What was what was it like? And and I, I believe just from researching a little that that was where you first heard about the term lesbian. Ah, yes. Um, okay, so that's a fun little story because it has a, a a good little comedic punch to it. So my first therapist that I ever went to early on in my marriage, I think it was before I even had my first baby. Um, I was sent to a like a Hasidic man uh, who was a licensed therapist, and I told him. I'm not happy in my marriage because I don't love my husband. And he said, how do you know what love is? And I said, because I've been in love before with this girl in my high school, Sarah. And he said, oh, um, do you think you might be a lesbian? And I said, what's that? And he explained it to me and I was like, oh, maybe I'm a lesbian. Um, and so I went home from that session and my mother was like, 
called me up and how was therapy and you know are you fixed now and i said uh he told me i might be a lesbian and she said what's that and so i explained it to my mother and um now we all know what lesbians are and then of course the, the therapist then proceeded to try to fix my lesbianism and um his idea was that he would do practice hypnotherapy on me and teach me um kind of hip self-hypnosis so that i can a go to the root of where i was ever harmed in my childhood that might have broken my brain to make me a, a lesbian and then later he wanted me to use self-hypnosis to kind of take myself out of my body while being having intercourse with my husband um both not good ways to approach um what i was dealing with um but I was grateful to him to have language around what I was experiencing and now more of a resource to connect with a larger community. And so that was the beginning of a lot of introspection for me. And I mean, a lot of forced kind of conversion therapy type stuff, but then also uh, eventually coming to terms with this is who I am and finding my community and my people. I'm so sorry you went through that though, because that must have been really quite horrific. Have it, you know, this attempted conversion therapy and things like that. It was, um, you know, what's interesting is I, I want to be clear also to be like, I don't want to conflate my experience of conversion type therapy with what, you know, the real extreme, like Jonah type conversion therapy. I didn't go through that kind of abuse and I don't want to co-opt that experience. Um, it was more of, um, you know, trying to talk me out of it, the hypnosis that I talked about and, um, you know, trying to help me see why I would be better off not being queer. Um, what I'm grateful for is that there was some part of me that always knew that that felt like a true, a, a real aspect of self that I didn't want, I didn't want to have it go away. So like, I remember my sister asking me, like, if I can give you a pill that would just make you stop being attracted to women, would you take it? And I said, no, uh, despite how much it was messing up my whole entire life and not allowing me to just be the good little housewife and mother that I was supposed to be. Um, I knew that that was a core part of self that I liked. That was a beautiful part of myself. My queerness was always, as soon as I like understood it better, I liked it and it felt true to a core piece of self and is now kind of a guiding light to me. Like it's the reason why I, I was able to keep pursuing my like an intelligent intellectual journey out of the community and figuring out what my actual beliefs are and um through all of it kind of my queerness gave me community it gave me um permission to be gentle with myself as i navigated all the other pieces um because it felt so real and true like nobody could extinguish that part of me while you know in every other way they were trying to get me to conform and to follow and to to stay in the lines um i feel like that kind of core piece that was always with me since childhood um or since adolescence maybe i should say um turned out to be such an important piece of identity that that was like a kind of a guiding light for me so i'm grateful for it did it cause uh serious conflict with your parents for example uh, yes, ultimately it caused serious conflict with everybody in my former community. Um, you know, I, I, when I came out and this was, you know, slowly a process of like 
came, I came out that first time to my mom when I said the therapist says I'm a lesbian, right? But then that kind of got, uh, became the, a conversation about, so how do you um, fix that and stay in the marriage? How do you fix that and stay religious? How do you, you know, keep conforming and being what we need you to be? Um, and then, you know, there were several different versions of coming out. Um, as I came to terms with it, as I, when I left the marriage and was like, I have to try to date other men and see maybe it was just about my ex-husband and nothing to do with my attraction. Um, and I dated other Hasidic men for like a year or so, and then realized this is not working for me either. And spent some time just focused on, you know, focused inwards on myself and my three babies that I was raising for the first time in my life without a man telling me what to do, without my parents, without anybody's, you know, kind of um, invasive, um, you know, looking in on us. And those were kind of the most beautiful years. Those early years, you know, my ex-husband remarried very quickly after our divorce, like four months later, he was married to another woman. And yeah, um, which, which meant that he, at, at the time, he really, you know, kind of was focusing on his new family and left us alone, um, which was hard for the children. They, you know, we were kind of adjusting to this new space where they weren't really seeing their father much and I was their sole parent. Um, but in some ways, it, we were our own little unit, you know, just the four of us and trying to figure out how do we, what, what, what do we care about? What's this new life going to look like? Um, and it was an incredible time of just finding our values, learning about what matters. And um, that was the period of time where I started realizing maybe I need to just come to terms with my queerness. I mean, this is also a, a big piece of it was I discovered this nonprofit called Eshel. Eshel helps ultra-Orthodox or Orthodox Jews, uh, LGBTQ Jews um, and their families. Um, so I went to this like Shabbaton, which is like a weekend retreat for uh, queer Jews. And I saw these beautiful, happy families, you know, children and their parents just living fully aligned lives. They're not um, separating, you know, hiding their queerness from their Judaism. They're not hiding their Judaism from their queerness. They're just being complete and open with each other. And I, I said, this is what I want. I'm done with the hiding and the lying. I want to raise my children in a, in a world that is accepting of the entirety of who we are. And it was one of those, it was also like a, a, a recognition that my queerness was not separate from my role as a parent. Um, I was a queer person raising these children. We were a queer family and I needed to figure out how to do that in a way that um, was aligned. And then sadly, the next few years learned that there's no way to do that in my Hasidic community. Um, and when I, and that's when I kind of like came out as secular and as queer in my community. Um, and that's when I lost uh, to come back. I, I just remembered the thread. So to come back to like my family and how they took it, you know, that's when it all kind of exploded. My family turned on me, my community turned on me, all of my friends. It was this kind of big wreck. Oh, your friends? Yes. Oh, that's horrible. I guess you, I, I, I don't know why I, I sort of expect it of the families. And I, I would like to think your friends would gather around you. What, in what way did they show their, uh, you know, um, well, I can't think of words today, but that they weren't happy. Um, I think 
Yeah, it, what's important to understand here is that in a community that's so um, insular and tight knit, it's dangerous for for people to uh, affiliate themselves with someone who is an outcast or an outlier or no longer, you know, of the belief um, that is, is expected because it, it um, reflects badly on the person too. So that was a big piece of it. My friends felt very betrayed because even even if they were to stop being friends with me immediately, their relationship with me up until then was going to make them seem suspect, you know? So now they're dealing with um, the backlash from people around them being like, you're, you're friends with this person? What does that say about you? And to be fair, it does say something about them because I wasn't hiding these parts of self from the people closest to me. So my friends knew about my exploration of you know sexuality and they knew about my uh questioning of the faith and we talked for you know we had all these deep conversations about what this means to me and what this means for them and also you know it was maybe the most exciting thing happening in their lives was hearing my stories of you know my sexual encounters and the people i was meeting and the exploration i was doing um my life was fascinating to the people in my life at the time so they were right to have kind of battened down the hatches and be like, we don't know any, we don't know her. We have nothing to do with her. We we're not related to this thing that's happening here because uh, if people started looking too closely, they would see, wait, there's a reason you were this close to this person who's now on the outside. Um, I don't think I blamed them. I don't think I blamed them then either. I think I understood completely why they needed to kind of distance themselves from me. It's, it's something that's so hard. I guess to fully uh, imagine for most of us because I think we can all imagine maybe falling out with a friend. We can all imagine friends or family betraying us. But I mean, at this point, were you totally alone? And what did it feel like? I was not totally alone. So I, I'm really grateful for my particular trajectory because I started building new community kind of in my little secret way while I was questioning and figuring it out. Um, so I had a tight knit group of new friends who still, this is 10 years later, they're my family, they're my people, you know, these are people who were with me right from the start of like this new leg of my journey. Um, so I had uh, an incredible support system. And I think at the same time, while my, my former friends, you know, from the community were trying to like create distance between for themselves, I too was trying to create distance for myself. I think it, you know, one of the quick repercussions of my coming out was my ex-husband fighting me for custody of my children. And so it very quickly was clear to me that I don't know who's safe. I don't know who's working with my ex-husband, who's going to tell him things about me or, you know, hurt, harm my ability to retain custody of my children, which became my singular focus over the next, you know, years after that. And so everybody became unsafe. I had to be super careful about who I trusted. Um, and some people who I trusted turned out to not be worthy of that and harmed, my, harmed me in the process of the custody battle. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. 
Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So scary, the thought of that, really. I, 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 you know, I'm so happy that you're in such a good place now and so sorry that you went through all of that because it's just horrific. Your, your husband, because I got the impression, your ex-husband, I should say, that that he sort of wiped his hands of the family, of the children. He moved on so quickly. And now he's, at this point in the story, he's, he's trying to get custody of the children. So it, it sounds like the community's in his ear saying, come on, you've got to do this for the community. Yes. Um, so that's absolutely the case with yeah. my ex-husband, I think. And, and the fact that he uh, kind of moved on from the children after the divorce was also the community in his ear. I think um, it's, it, it happens kind of, very, it's very common in the community that this is the case. And I think specifically for my ex-husband, he's um, the kind of person who relies a lot on like guidance from his rabbis and leaders. And um, he, it matters a lot to him, like to, to do right in that, in those contexts. And so they told him your responsibility is to move on and focus on your new wife. And, you know, the very, very quickly after the seven children he had with her or six, six children he had with her um, and to, you know, to not worry about those three children. Like you need to focus on your new family. And, and those same rabbis guided him. Oh no, you need to save those three children from their mother who is going to bring, you know, turn them against our faith and, and things like that. Um, and to just to set the record, you know, super clear um, it's 10 years later now, and I'm still in court fighting against him. So these past 10 years have been an utter nightmare of fighting him and the entire community, my own family included, um, you know, rabbis, leaders, lay people, everybody contributing to his legal fund to, you know, he had a big fundraiser last uh, two years ago, where he raised over a million dollars um, for, you know, to help fund his legal fees to fight oh my for word. custody of my children, who are now, you know, uh, almost 16, 18 and 20 years old. And he's still, you know, in this, like, just kind of, I think that the piece that the community is so afraid of is seeing me succeed, you know, seeing my children actually make it out of their community and be stable and successful and happy because how do they then uh, deter other people from trying to follow the same path? I think that's one of the things that will surprise many listeners most is, is in religious circles and extreme religious circles, how often they're successful in custody battles when the mother tries to leave or anyone tries to leave. Uh, and it just seems to those of us who are perhaps secular, I know some people listening might be religious, I don't know, but it just seems like extraordinary that in today's society that because the mother might be queer or whatever, doesn't have exactly the, you know, doesn't conf conform to the expectations of the religious circle, that she could really lose her children. It just seems open and shut to me. It's like, well, of course, it seems so obvious that your children shouldn't be taken away from you. Uh, I'm glad you're raising this because it's actually surprising to so many people that it, it is more common for people to lose custody of their children than the other way around. It's so rare for someone to successfully, you know, leave the community or make their own choice, whatever leaving means to them because different people land in different places. But, you know, anybody who kind of shifts off of the mainstream path of what Hasidic Judaism expects of them, um, if they want, you know, if they have children, they are more likely to lose custody of their children. That's the story that I was told from the beginning of like, you know, when I thought about leaving, therapists told me, you're going to lose your children. You know, people would be like, oh, showing me examples of people, of what it would look like for me if I dared to, you know, make these choices for myself. 
um, I knew that I was up against a terrifying um, machine of power. And the Hasidic community really has um, a lot of power in this in this um, space. I think a because of you know the political block. Like there, there's Hasidic people vote in the judges here, and so judges want to. Um, maintain good relationships with them. B, I think similar to your anxiety about speaking out about, you know, Hasidic community or lumping ideas, you know, in this way, I think nobody wants to go up and say, we think it's okay for these children to be removed completely from the Hasidic community. Nobody wants to make that judgment. Um, and so I think the, the narrative has been for so long, let's just keep these children in the tradition and the lifestyle that they were used to. They use the term like status quo, keep the children in the status quo. That's like the way to maintain their well-being. And because Hasidism is so insulated, having a parent that's outside of it, even access to that parent, even visitation with that parent is messing with that status quo because this child will no longer fit into the community. They have access to information. They have access to even um, just see, you know, a, a relationship with someone who is saying, no, this is not my truth. Um, and so historically, that the outcome for most people leaving is that they'll lose custody of their children, they'll lose visitation of their children with their children, or even if they do have visitation, it'll be um, with with the expectation that when they're with their children, they're going to pretend to be religious. So that was originally the case for me. I you know, lost custody of my children. The children were with their father four days a week. I had them the other three, but he had all the legal decision-making and all the, the custody, you know, like that, everything else that comes with that. Um, and for the three days that the children were with me, I was legally obligated to hide every aspect of self. I wasn't allowed to, you know, share with them my religious beliefs, my sexuality. I wasn't allowed to have you know, any kind of expression of self with the children, which if you think about that, like that's not parenting. Um, parenting is sharing your values. Parenting is being your full self. Otherwise you're just a babysitter. Um, the point of being a parent is that you're raising them with, you know, the things that matter to you. Um, and so it was a horrible period of my life. And I, and to be clear, so many people go through this exact experience. It's not unique to me. I just want to make sure the world knows that. Um, judges can force you to hide yourself and anything that matters to you just for the right to see your own children. Um, and that was my, my case for five years. That was my experience. And then I appealed that legal decision and won back custody of my children. And that was in 2017. Wow. Well, I don't have children myself. Um, what, what does it feel like for a mother to lose custody of her children? I can't speak for all people. I can speak for myself. Um, I think it was the worst, I mean, the worst pain a person can ever go through. Um, for me, especially, I mean, I was raised in a culture where my whole identity was shaped around being a mother. Um, it was something that I was trained in so early on. I, I practically raised my younger siblings. They, you know, I was the one tucking them into bed at night and, um, you know, taking them to buy their first bra and to, you know, I, I parented my younger siblings. I was always a, a, 
a caring, like a maternal type of person. And I knew that this was, it was a point of pride for me. I was, I would have my own children and I would do this thing really well because this was a, who I am. And, and then I spent, you know, my, the first 10 years of parenting doing just that, you know, my, from, you know, 20 to 30 years old, I was their sole, you know, their primary parent. Um, even when I was married, I was the one really doing the brunt of what it is to be a parent. Um, sharing my values, singing them to sleep, caring, you know, all of the little things. And then the big scary things, keeping them alive, you know, taking them to the doctor and, and dealing with medical emergencies and worrying about keeping, you know, food in the house and the financial stress of all that. It was all on me. And so for, you know, suddenly when my kids were five, seven and nine years old, um, for the courts to say, actually, no, we're going to give this to your ex-husband and, you know, you just be a shadow of yourself. I didn't know who I was anymore. I, how do I be a person outside of my role as a mom? Um, which turned out to be a positive thing for me. Like real talk, like I'm, I, I don't know many people who get to go through this extreme pendulum of, of experiences, but, um, having that period of time where that doesn't mean I stopped being a mom, but I had a chunk of the week that my kids were not with me. And so I suddenly had to confront who I am as a person outside of who I am as a mom. Um, that was an interesting, I mean, the first year I just cried and cried and cried the whole time they were gone. And then I, I learned how to fill that time and find hobbies and interests. And, you know, they would come back from their visit with their dad and I was refreshed and able to kind of show up for them and fill their buckets because mine was full already. So it was an interesting experience uh, while horrifying and I don't wish this on my worst enemies. Um, and then, you know, after that period, you know, uh, I appealed that decision and my children came back to live with me. Um, they still had a generous visitation schedule with their father, but they were spending most of their days with me and I was legally allowed to be my full self, which is the biggest piece in all of this. You know, for me, I was finally able to openly share my values, share the things that matter to me, share my community with them. Um, and, you know, that was just such a relief. And, and for, for all of us, for the children too, they got back a full, a full mother. Um, Are they religious now, your children? So I don't like to speak of um, my children's, you know, I, I want them to come to a place where they can share their own stories when they want to. Um, I will say that they're, um, they, are, they're not in the cult. They're not in the fundamentalist belief system. They're all incredible people with incredible values. Uh, they're all attending secular schools. My older two kids are going to college next fall. Um, yeah, my, my baby just turned 16 last week and is thriving in public school. And um, they're incredible people who I'm super duper proud of. Oh, well, congratulations on that. What an, an amazing result that is. And I, I can't imagine how proud you are. Um, when you left the, um, the the Hasidic Judaism, I remember speaking to, again, Emily Green, and she said, like, there were some things that we would never think of that you just don't realize about, I suppose, the outside world. And one example she gave was she went to a job interview for quite a like a highbrow, serious job, but she was wearing jeans. And she said that's why she didn't get the job. And she didn't understand that jeans and like suit trousers were any different. And that just, it was so funny for me to hear that because those are the kinds of things that we take for granted as almost innate. Like, well, of course, jeans are less smart than suit trousers. But then you think about it and it's like, well, there's no reason for that except we've decided that. There could be an alien community on a different planet where jeans are the 
the the you know the really posh formal things and definitely um oh gosh it's such a culture shock there's so many little things there's still moments i mean i'm 10 years out and there's still moments where i'm like oh wow i didn't realize that you know this was the case um music and pop culture and like just being able to follow a conversation where people just get a lot of things and it, it's I mean, I watch so much TV now, it's embarrassing, and I still haven't caught up <laughs> to the stuff that like my peers would know just from years and years of exposure. What about um, language? Because English sounds like it's your first language. Is that what people spoke a- around around you? Um, so actually, Yiddish is my first language. It's the first language I spoke. And, um, you know, my brother's in my family, the boys and the young children spoke Yiddish. And then as we got older, the girls would speak English because in school there was more of a, in my particular school, we had more access to um, like English as a spoken language and just also secular education was a little bit better than it was for the boys and for my peers, like girls in other Hasidic schools. So I was quite lucky with that. And I also just like language a lot. So I read a lot and I think um, it, it did help me a lot once I transitioned out of the Hasidic world. Yeah, I've heard it's also because sometimes it's because the women uh, tend to do the shopping and things like that. So they have to be able to speak English to to do those kinds of uh, chores. I yeah, and also just the women are the breadwinners in, in, in many Hasidic sects. I wouldn't say, I shouldn't say all, but in many Hasidic sects, the women are the people who are running the household and getting the jobs. So we need to be able to communicate in, in a way with the larger world. That's fascinating. Gosh. Wow. Well, um, I, sh- I should probably let you go in a second. Is there, is there anywhere you'd like to sort of send people to any sort of websites and things like that? Yeah. Um, I briefly mentioned earlier the, the nonprofit called Footsteps. Um, so that's where I'm currently employed. I support folks like me who are figuring out who they are, transitioning out of ultra-Orthodox Judaism um, to a life of their choosing, whatever that looks like. And Footsteps provides them with Uh, financial support, educational support, therapy. There's a lot of different groups and social spaces for people to just kind of connect with each other and feel less alone as they're dealing with this. Um, Footsteps is always happy to take your donations. So if you can afford to throw your money at people who can really use it. Um, And uh, that's uh, that's my big um, plug is, you know, uh, there's a lot of need and people are really struggling and can use support. Yeah, I hope people can because it's a it's a very worthy cause, and I know a lot of people follow this podcast and listen to this podcast because of the you know, the exposing of uh, cults and extreme religions and things. So that is a way to to seriously help. Um, I just I should just ask finally. I mean, do you, do you have any relationship with your your family now back in the in the community? Everybody loves that question. Um, <laughs> I have a somewhat of a limited relationship with my mother. We talk from time to time. I care about her deeply. And, um, you know, so for every once in a while, either she'll reach out to me or I'll reach out to her and we'll connect and it'll feel great and it'll feel like home. And then also it'll throw me back 10 steps um, and kind of I'll have to do like the work to kind of recover and center myself back into the life and my values that I'm currently living. And so... People love to hear that I do have a relationship with her, but it's not necessarily the happy outcome that people think it is. It's complicated and I still don't know what's best for me. I'm trying to navigate that. I talked to a couple of my sisters to, um, again, once in a while we'll, we'll connect and it's painful as much as it's wonderful. And the rest of my siblings don't really talk to me. Um, so that's a loss. 
you must be so tempted. So you must be so tempted to say like, oh, like it's nice out here. Come, come join, come be with, with us. I'm not. And I'll tell you why, because the process to get here is awful. Um, the journey out is horrific and painful. And I was almost homeless twice through this and I almost lost my children and I lost everything I knew. Most people don't have the stamina to do this. I don't want people to go through this pain. I wish I could help people not be born into that in the first place so that they don't have to leave. But I don't feel like that's either my place to do. I just focus on people, supporting people who are choosing to leave and trying to help them have the smoothest transition possible so that they have the least pain along the way. Thank you, Javi Weisberger. I hope you guys are fans as much as I am now of Javi. Uh, what? Oh, I've already waxed lyrical about her in the introduction, so I won't embarrass her any further. But uh, do check out Footsteps. It's obviously an organization that means a great deal to her and will mean a great deal to a lot of people looking to transition from the Hasidic Jewish community to real life, um, I suppose. So that's that. Do sign up uh, on patreon.com slash Gold to get the bonus episodes that come out on Saturday. I've got one with Sean Atwood soon talking about the other side of Russell Brand because we've recently criticised him with Helen Lewis. So he's going to show another side to the the, the comedian and uh, um, uh, messiah on YouTube. That's going to be one of the Saturday episodes coming up that are behind a paywall. Another one will be about the news anchor who was fired in America for criticising Scientology. So all that's happening. And then on the main podcast that you're listening to now, there's some big ones I'm doing in the studio, as I was saying before, ex-Jehovah's Witness Harrison Cotier and ex-Scientologist Alexander Barnes-Ross. See you soon.